Amen. You would turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 11. As you're turning there, let me just point out that we just read, or we heard in our, in our hearing, reading of John 17, where there was a lot said about oneness and unity. Father in Christ and Christ in those who would believe. By the way, that chapter is about us. There's a lot of places in the Bible you can't go to and say, this is about me. But when he, when he said he prayed for those who would believe based on the testimony of those who stood before him, that's us. <laughs> so that, that is about us. There's a lot there about unity. Our text today will not be about unity. It'll be about when there is not unity. You found your way to Acts chapter 11. Last week, I titled the message, The Conversion of the Church, continuing our study, the conversion of Cornelius, the conversion of Peter, and then the conversion of the church. But I wasn't able last week to get past the introduction. So we had a sermon that kind of didn't fit in that pattern. It did fit in the flow of God's word. Uh, and we may have another one next week that just, uh, at, at verse 18 of chapter 11, um, repentance unto life is, is really standing out and we may visit that again next week but today we will uh, come back to Acts 11 in an effort to see the effects of Cornelius's conversion on the church and the conflict that arose from that if you've made your way there hold your finger as we pray and ask God's blessing on us now Heavenly Father we come to you Asking that you would visit us in power just now. We believe the testimony of your scriptures. That your word is sharp as a two-edged sword. And by your spirit it's able to accomplish the work whereunto it is sent. Before us we have a historical count. account of events that took place. We see these things from the particular point of view of first century Christians and the apostles and the church leaders. And we see here commandments and implications that govern how we ought to live and behave as Christians making up the body of Christ. And we read these passages and we see examples, good examples and poor examples. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to see them and that you'd help us to know the difference. Help us to avoid error. Help us to follow the example of righteousness. Help us to know and understand the implications for your church today. Help us that we can live according to your commands. We thank you, Lord, for the peace and for the comfort that we at Waco Family Baptist Church have experienced. We thank you for your hand of protection against factions and dissension. We pray for continued protection against those things. Lord, we also pray for help when you see fit to bring us through times of difference, times of difficulty within the church. We ask, Lord, that you keep us from sin, that you press us in to our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God, we pray that through the preaching of your word, which is considered foolishness by the world, that you would demonstrate your power in edifying, building up your church, 
in sanctifying your people and in the salvation of lost men. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please follow along in your Bible as I read Acts chapter 11. We'll read the first 18 verses. This is the word of the living God. Now the apostles and brothers and sisters who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, the Jewish believers took issue with him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained at length to them in an orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. An object came down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky, and it came to where I was, and I stared at it, and I was thinking about it. And I saw the four-footed animals of the earth, the wild animals, the crawling creatures, the birds of the sky. I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times and everything was drawn back up into the sky. And behold, at that moment, three men who had been sent from Caesarea came down to the house where, I, where we were staying. And the spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. These six brothers also went with me and we entered the man's house. And he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house saying, send some men to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. And he will speak to you and he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave them the same gift as he also gave to us after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well, then. God has also granted to the Gentiles the repentance unto life. We've considered in chapter 10, the conversion of Cornelius and his house, their repentance unto life, as it is stated here, receiving the gift of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, speaking with other tongues as a sign that they had received the Spirit, that first century sign that testified of their faith in Christ. Then we considered the conversion of Peter, and by that we did not mean the regeneration or justification of Peter, but a major shift in Peter's understanding about Gentile inclusion into the kingdom of God. Today we move forward in our study as we consider the conversion of the church. And here again, Excuse me, we're not referring to the salvation of the church, salvation of church members, but we're re referring to a shift in membership, the adjustment in attitude and actions that would be required to take place in the church with these new members 
these newcomers and, and the transformation of the ontology of the church itself. And by that, I mean its makeup and its place in the world. Now, we said this last week, but just as a reminder, up through chapter nine of Acts, the followers of Jesus Christ, who would have called themselves the, the people of the way, Jesus said, I am the way. And they would have said, we are people of the way. Those followers of Jesus Christ could have been up through Acts chapter nine, referred to as a sect of Judaism. And that wouldn't have been too far off. Most believers were Jews, either born Jews, and then they had come to Christ, or they were proselytes who had converted to Judaism and then heard and came to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But now, with the salvation of Cornelius and those Gentiles who were there in his house, without becoming Jews, they came to Christ. Now the church cannot be simply known any longer as a sect of Judaism, but it's a whole different thing, a whole different makeup. And this is a the conversion of the church that we speak of, a conversion of membership, no longer only Jews and proselytes, but now also Gentiles. And in chapter 10, we saw those events unfold. Remember the repetition in chapter 10. We, we heard Luke's account, Luke writing this book of Acts as his second volume. We heard his account of the vision that Cornelius had seen and the vision that Peter had seen. And then Peter went back and it, it's repeated uh, again in chapter 10. And now here in chapter 11, we have a repetition again a third time as Peter is speaking and giving his account of these events in Jerusalem. So there's much repetition. There's recounting of these events. And this has become uh, a problem. There is a conflict that has arisen. And that's what we have in chapter 11. For each of us Christians who were born Gentile, we read chapter 10 and we see those events as a cause for celebration. What a glorious day. The gospel coming to the Gentiles. They come to Christ without entering the door of Judaism. And we see that as a glorious day and a cause for celebration. But we see in chapter 11 those same events, those same things that bring us joy and celebration were a real issue for some of the Jewish members of the church. And this became a source of conflict and disturbed the peace of the church. The church up to this point in our study, if you'll remember, had experienced attacks from outside. Remember those apostles who were arrested, who were beaten, who were told no longer speak in that name. The church had experienced attacks from outside. Then the church had experienced attacks from inside. If you remember Ananias and Sapphira who had lied to the Holy Spirit and lied to the church. There was an, an attack of Satan from within, but that attack was only through one couple, through two people. Now, here in chapter 11, we see a threat to the church that is not just from one or two people. This is the first real conflict. Maybe that's overstated. But this conflict will not be short-lived. This conflict will last. 
Some preachers and some commentators, as you read uh, on Acts chapter 11 and hear sermons on Acts chapter 11, they, they label this or they title this section something like resolving conflict within the church. Resolving conflict within the church. And I, I certainly hope that we're able to take this passage and other texts in the scripture and find a way when there is conflict to find a way forward, to find a way to find peace when conflict arises, as conflicts certainly do arise. But we must point out here as we come to Acts 11, that this is not how to resolve conflict within the church. Because this conflict is not resolved. It's not resolved here in chapter 11. We see at the end, they quieted down. But that's not the same as resolved. We find this same disturbance resurfacing in Acts 15 and in Galatians 2. This conflict is not resolved. In, in fact, I believe there is still a disturbance, a conflict in the broader visible church over basically the same thing. Where do the Jews and Gentiles fit together in the kingdom of God? Is there a special place for those descendants of Abraham according to the flesh over and above those who are descendants of Abraham only by faith. There are many today who still want to place Gentiles who have received the word of God, who have been saved by grace through faith. They want to still place Gentiles in, in a subordinate place. They want to say those Gentile Christians are second class citizens. Well, they don't say it like that. But what they do say is, if there's a Jew who comes to Christ, they get a little more clout. They're super Christian. They seem to ignore what the scripture says when we read things like this. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one. I thought about this. I thought about those times that uh, we've seen those little t-ball games. And it's usually, I think, the mothers who say, well, we're not keeping score. But ask any father in the stands and he'll know the score. And they know the score. We're not keeping score, but we know the score. When we read Christ himself is our peace and he made both groups into one. We come along and say, but we can still tell the difference. We still know the division. We still know how to split that one into two. We ignore things like so that he himself might make the two one new person and in this way establish peace that he might reconcile them in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity and he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the father so then you are no longer strangers and foreigners Gentiles, Gentile Christians. That's a misnomer. Sorry. You who were Gentile. 
You're in Christ. You're Christians. You are, Ephesians continues, fellow citizens. Fellow citizens with the saints. And you are of God's household. We must remember this, but this is what the conflict is about. And in chapter 11, it's not resolved. There is a clear division and the division is not of Christ. Let us work through these verses and we're going to see sinful behavior in contrast with the rule of Christ's love. Verse one. Now the apostle and the brothers and the sisters who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. I just want to take a second while we're here just to point out that Christ broke down the dividing walls. Christ brought all groups into one. But women at that time were less than men in society. Under Jewish law, women were, were not considered fit to testify in court. And it's my understanding that's still Jewish law today. But with the Christians, the apostles, the brothers, and the sisters are mentioned because in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, male or female, slave or free. We are all one in Christ. Verse two, Peter came up to Jerusalem. The Jewish believers took issue with him. Peter came to Jerusalem. We'll see in the following verses that as we read before that he brought those witnesses with him, those who had accompanied him to Joppa uh, or from Joppa to Caesarea and now to Jerusalem. This thing that happened, some have called the Gentile Pentecost. This thing that happened when the Gentiles are brought to salvation in Jesus Christ, this should have been a celebration. Peter and these men should have walked into Jerusalem with parades, with celebration, with joy. What wonderful news. <coughs> Instead, the thing that should have been a cause for joy is the very thing that some took issue with. It's the very thing that comes with conflict. And this is often the case with conflict in the church. It's the thing that should be so clear. It's the thing that should be a no-brainer. It's the thing that the Bible clearly speaks to. Those seem to be the things that blow up because somebody has a bee in their bonnet or somebody has a feeling. The text tells us they took issue with Peter. And, and if they're going to take issue with Peter, let's talk about, I mean, what would those issues be? I mean, they may say the Gentiles cannot be saved. They cannot come to Christ. The Gentiles are unclean. Or they may say the Gentiles certainly cannot be the same as the Jews because they're unclean. Whatever problem they have is surely centered around the salvation and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that happened with the Gentiles, right? I mean, that would be the problem, right? But look at the next, look, look at the end of verse two. Jewish believers took issue with him, verse three, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Somebody ought to say, wait a minute, that's, is, is that the issue? Is that it? This is often the case with conflict, especially conflict within the church. 
that we get off the main thing. I love that when Peter gives his account that he gets back to the main thing. That he gets back to the main thing. We'll, we'll get there. But they have conflict and, and the stated cause for this conflict is dinner. You stayed with them. You ate with them. The conflict is over being in a Gentile's home. The conflict is over breaking Jewish traditions. This is, this is all over these Jewish believers who have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, who, have, who are now redeemed people wanting to live and wanting everyone else to live still under the rules of the Pharisees. Let's still live that way. They want to keep those rules, those rules of which Jesus said to the Pharisees, woe to you, for you load people with burdens that are hard to bear and you yourselves are not even, uh, you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. You won't lift a finger to carry the burden you place on them. And now these Christian Jews are saying, we want that burden to remain. We want to keep that load, that oppression. This conflict is about the external. It's about keeping up appearances. It's not nothing. We read in chapter 10 that when Peter entered the home of Cornelius, that Peter said, this is a big deal. Peter said, but God showed me not to call any person unclean. He said, you know that, that being in this house, home, being in this house, it's a big deal. But God showed me not to call any person unclean because God had showed Peter. Not only did he enter the house, he stayed for several days. And those Jews are thinking like probably some of us are thinking, you know, they had pork chops one evening for dinner. <laughs> And somebody's already thought, and what was for breakfast? Yep, probably had bacon. He stayed there for several days. He had broken the external traditions. But in verse four, Peter began to explain. Look at verse four. Peter began to explain at length to them in an orderly sequence. You got to love this. Because this is how you do it. This is how you address conflict. Notice what we don't see here. Peter didn't say, do you know I'm an apostle? He didn't play the apostle card. You, you, you can't accuse me like that. I was chosen by Jesus. I was with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. No, Peter didn't play the apostle card. He didn't say I was at the empty tomb. You know what else he didn't say? I'm the first Pope. Peter didn't say that. He didn't say anything like I'm Christ's vicar on earth because he wasn't. Peter never claimed to be the first Pope. He never claimed to have that kind of power. God forbid that any man does. Peter didn't just say, now I don't know if you can say these words in the sermon, but here goes. Peter didn't just say, Shut up. I mean, sometimes when you're accused, sometimes when somebody comes at you like that, you just want to say, just stop. You just want to shut it down. And Peter did not do that. Peter didn't get mean. 
Now I'm preaching to myself. Peter didn't hear their childish statements and answer back with childish statements. I can out immature you. Sometimes that's how we answer conflict. Even in the church. Sometimes that's how we answer conflict. Peter didn't ignore the conflict. Some people think that's the best way to deal with conflict. Ignore it and it'll go away. It never goes away. That's not how you deal with conflict. Peter faced this conflict head on. You, you don't even get the idea when he did leave Caesarea that he delayed before going to Jerusalem. He, he comes directly to Jerusalem. He went to meet this face to face. We do well to learn from people. Not to ignore conflict, not to be childish, not to handle conflict in these poor ways, but to meet conflict head on, to face it directly, to face it as Christians, but to face it directly. I, I believe most of the time when we face conflict, we are better for it. Both sides of the conflict are better for it. Just having heard the other side, having seen the differences, having seen the point of view of the other person, we're all better for it. Even when you are proven to be wrong, we should be thankful for that. You know what? When I'm proven to be wrong, that means I used to be wrong. But now I'm not wrong anymore. What a blessing. What a blessing. Peter didn't meet this conflict in a negative way. What he did do is to testify to the truthful facts surrounding the matter in an orderly way. This is what happened. And he goes through it in order. Now there are slight variations in the wording between chapter 11 and chapter 10, but, but one main difference that we see those variations is that chapter 10 is Luke's account and chapter 11 is Peter's passionate, uh, convincing recounting of these same events. There's a little more emphasis in certain parts. Like, look in verse 6, this, this sheet that is lowered. I've been finding a place to say this, and I, and I haven't, but the sheet lowered by four corners. It's repeated over and over again. It was lowered by four corners, four corners. Uh, some believe that that should cause us to think of the four corners of the compass, the four corners of the earth. That this is representative of all men without distinction. But this sheet is lowered, and in verse 6, I stared at it. I was thinking about it. I saw the four-footed animals of the earth, the wild animals, the crawling creatures, the birds of the sky. Peter's emphasizing here, I stared at it. I thought about it. I saw it. And, and this helps them to see, wait a minute, this is not just something Peter's blowing off. This, is, this has gravity with him. Verse 7, I, I also heard a voice saying, arise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. Peter is saying here, I am also a Jew. I was raised with the same prejudices that you were. 
I was raised with the same beliefs that you were. And when I was told to rise, kill, and eat, I said no. But he continues in this orderly account. Verse 9, but a voice came from heaven, answering a second time, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. And then he says, this happened three times. This happened three times. Some of you will remember that when we've talked about the scriptural use of the word holy, that holy takes on something of a deeper meaning when we hear holy, holy, holy. The repetition of three is significant to those who are hearing here in Jerusalem. And this happened three times. I think it's interesting, the three times. Because it's not clear as to what exactly happened three times. Clearly, don't call what don't call unholy what I call holy. Clearly, that was stated three times. But was Peter told three times to arise, kill, and eat? And did he three times say no? But three times is significant. And then look at verse 11. Behold, at that moment, the timing of these men who came from Caesarea. At that moment, the timing at that moment was not lost on Peter. And it wouldn't have been lost on those who were hearing him in Jerusalem as he gave this account. This was not coincidence. This was not luck. This was nothing less than God's providential timing. At that moment, those men showed up. As a matter of fact, I'm convinced because remember in the, in the chapter 10 account, Peter's trying to figure out what this vision means and, and he's struggling with that. And then at that moment, these men show up. I think that was part of Peter's coming to understand. And then the Holy Spirit says, go with them. Verse 12, the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit said, go with them without misgivings. These six brothers also went with me. Jewish law required that truth would be established on the testimony of two or three witnesses. You remember we said last week, this is either three twos or two threes. This is, this is, I like to think of it this way. Two witnesses that would establish truth repeated three times, which has significance. Verse 13, he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house saying, send men to Joppa, have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here, and he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and your household. Here's Peter saying, the issue is not about where I spent the night or what we had for dinner. This is the issue. The Holy Spirit called me there to speak the words of the gospel of Jesus Christ and those people would be saved. That was the purpose of being there and that's what happened. He's saying, this is a reminder, God saves Gentiles. And then in verse 15, and we're just working through this quickly because it's a repetition and it's so much repeated. As I began to speak, verse 15, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he did on us at the beginning. And I remembered the words of the Lord. He used to say, John baptized with water, but you will baptize, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Peter's saying, I wasn't even able to finish preaching. 
I couldn't even get through what I was trying to say. Those people were ready to believe in Christ. The Holy Spirit was working. You know, a, a preacher can, can waste a lot of breath speaking if there's no inward call of the Holy Spirit. I, I said that improperly. That's not in my notes. It's not a waste of breath. It's one of the saddest jobs that a preacher has to do. The scripture calls it speaking death unto death. When you proclaim the gospel so that people are without excuse. But the Holy Spirit is not working to say. But here. We find the preacher didn't have to say much. He said some things we saw in chapter 10. He gave the gospel, but he didn't have to say much. The Holy Spirit was working. The Holy Spirit was calling those people to come to Christ in repentant faith. Just like Jesus had said it was happening. Just like it had happened at the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell there. This was the same work of God. And there are six witnesses to that fact. Verse 17, Peter has finished his, his account and he says, therefore, if God gave them the same gift as he also gave us. Notice how many times. Verse 15, I began to speak. The Holy Spirit fell on them just as he did upon us. Then in 17, if God gave them the same gift that he also gave to us. It's the same. And he's repeating that. He's making sure they're understanding this is the same. If God gave them the same gift he gave to us after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? Maybe somebody in that meeting would have said, I will, I'll stand in God's way. But Peter is saying, I'm not going to hold on to my prejudices in the face of what God is doing. Now, some of you who have read ahead, you know, Peter struggles with this. This is not, this is not easy. And, and he struggles. And in Galatians 2, uh, Paul has to meet Peter face to face and correct him. This is tough. But Peter states here clearly and accurately, who are we to hold on to our prejudices? To hold on to what we want? In the face of what God is doing. Peter says, I didn't want to hold on to my prejudices and I didn't. So we come to verse 18. They heard this, they quieted down and glorified God. This verse intrigues me. They said, well then, and I think they probably said it like that. Well then. God has also granted to the Gentiles a repentance that leads to life. But this conflict, this prejudice was not resolved here. It wasn't fixed here. They quieted down. That's what we read. But we should not think that, that this means their hearts and their minds were changed about the matter and now they were all unified. This prejudice went deep. And with some of them, it would die hard like Peter. And with others, it wouldn't die. 
We mentioned that, that we find this coming back up again in Acts 15 and then in Galatians 2. But in reality, this conflict is the beginning. This is the start of a factious group called the Judaizers who would bring pain to Paul throughout his ministry. This was a big deal, and I believe it still is a big deal. So how do we think about this in our day? How do we come at this with a 21st century mindset, thinking about this text beyond the bare facts of the text? We should know that this was at least, in major part, a holding tightly to prejudice by those Jews in the church. Before you start condemning them, how dare they? You better check for the law that is in our own eye. They had, they had been Jews and they had come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They had come to grips, at least in some way, with the corruption of the Pharisees and the errors of Judaism. Because they believed in Jesus, but they balked at the idea that those unclean, uncircumcised Gentiles would be accepted by God, just like us clean folks. I mean, that's the issue. This was, this was a failure in several parts. In the first place, this was a failure to see that God had planned from the very beginning to bring salvation to all the peoples of the earth without distinction of race or gender or societal position. God had given throughout the Old Testament sufficient hints that the kingdom of God would include Gentiles. All the way back in Genesis 12, when God made a covenant with Abraham, he said, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the families of the earth. And God would use the physical lineage of Abraham to bring the Messiah. But there had been a number of Gentiles, even through the Old Testament, who were brought into the kingdom, who were part of the kingdom of God, members of the kingdom of God, just like those Jews. We, we talked on Wednesday night about Rahab the harlot not only was she a harlot she was also a Gentile and Boaz's mother and in the lineage of Christ there had been sufficient hints the Jews who sought to keep this division in the body of Christ failed to see that God's plan from the beginning was for Gentile inclusion in the kingdom they forgot the words of Christ as he came to the Jews. He came unto his own and his own received him not. And then he rejected them and said, this place will be destroyed. Not one stone left on another. He accurately predicted the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in 70 AD. This was a failure to see God's plan from the very beginning. This was a failure on their part to see their own unworthiness as equal to, at least equal to, the unworthiness of the Gentiles. 
Now, surely they had some level of humility. Some level of humility would be required to come to Christ, to see our own sin, to see our own unworthiness is necessary in coming to Jesus Christ. But sometimes pride comes back up. Sometimes pride sneaks back in and it did here. And these Jewish believers start to see themselves as better, more worthy, or, or at least this, we are unworthy, but they are even more unworthy. They are even less worthy. This is a failure to see God's plan. It was a failure to see their own unworthiness as the same, equal to that of the Gentiles. And this was a failure to submit to the work of God as more important than their own preferences and prejudices. They heard Peter's account and they quieted down. They couldn't argue. They couldn't answer back. What are you going to answer when there are witnesses who said, this is what God did. We saw it. It was just like it was with us. God worked in the Gentiles the same as he had done with them. But in the inner man, they were not ready to yield. They were not ready to take their prejudices and lay them on the altar and say, God, if you're, if you're going to destroy my prejudices, that's fine with me. It's easy to look at them and say, they should have. Sometimes that's more difficult than us, isn't it? And it's my thing. I heard one preacher say, Everybody likes change until you try to change their thing. Brothers and sisters, I, we've grown up with prejudices. We've grown up in a world that is divided and filled with prejudice. But we've also seen that division and that prejudice within the walls of the church. I remember growing up where the white church was right down the road from the black church. And everybody acted like that was fine and that's the way it should have been. The world has changed a lot. And now there are still places that I can take you to where you have that same division. But now we see other divisions. We see People dividing the body of Christ on purpose. We have a young, old division. I hope we never see that at Waco family. Young people, you need those more experienced Christians. And older folks, we need the youth and vigor of those young people. I hope we never see that division. But we see it all around us. We have divisions in church even based on hobbies. So that the cowboys go to church over here. And the bikers go to church over there. And if you're a little bit country, you go to the church over there. And if you're a little bit rock and roll, you go to the church over there. Isn't that what we see? Division, division, division. And it's not scriptural. It's not in the Bible. 
There are so many things that, that distinguish each and every one of us. But when we have Christ in common, what can divide us? When we have Christ in common, we've got something to talk about. And we will not exhaust that subject. There, there are real reasons for churches to divide, for churches to be separate. There, there are real reasons, doctrinal reasons, church polity differences, differences in ecclesiology. But we must resist dividing the church by our prejudices and preferences. The whole world seems to be, and I know some of you are probably nervous right now. He's going to get political. I'm not. But we know, we watch the news, we see what's going on, and the whole world is talking about prejudices and division. That seems to be all we've heard for a while. And the world offers solutions. But their solutions to prejudice and division sometimes only causes more prejudice and division. It just makes the problem worse. And, and by the way, everyone has prejudices. You have those that you know about, and you may have those that you don't know about. Everyone has prejudices, so we can't ignore the fact. But some try to say, well, if there's hate, let's meet hate with hate. Does that fix anything? That doesn't fix anything at all. If there's injustice, let's match that injustice. These things only exacerbate the problem. Listen, it is only when a man or woman understands the holiness of God and his own sin. And the grace of God's salvation. Then he can look at another person without distinction. And see a sinner in need of a savior. It's then that he can look at another person saved by Jesus Christ. And say brother, sister. Without distinction. In chapter 11, this problem, this conflict was not resolved in the early church. But even if it had been resolved then, really, we have to face this issue of prejudice and preference in the church in every generation. We have to face it again and again and again. Our prayer is that God would bless us with love for the brethren without distinction. Amen. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would clarify these things in our hearts and minds. Lord, those things like, like the Apostle Peter who believed these things but had difficulty in executing them and putting them into practice. Lord, some of us have those same difficulties. We need your help. 
God, as we read earlier from John 17, the prayer of our Lord was that the Father would be in Him and that He would be in us. And that unity would be a testimony to the world that the world may know that you have sent Jesus Christ. God, help us to be beacons of light, beacons of hope. Help us to be testimonies to the grace of God. We pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus and for your kingdom's sake.